keep everyone on their toes, we will not be reading from Genesis this week. Our first reading from the epistles from Galatians chapter 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The word of the Lord. The lesson from the Gospels comes from Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. Please stand for the lesson from the Gospels. Verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. He said, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The Gospel of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Um, if you will excuse me, I, I have a stool up here. It's a little abnormal for us, but I have like an odd nerve thing that goes on. And so when I stand up for a long time, I lose feeling in my leg. So you'll see if I'm, if I don't have a stool, you'll see me doing really weird, like yoga looking poses when I'm preaching. And this is probably just less awkward. So anyway, uh, I'm going to pray for us real quickly. God, we ask that you would give us insight into who you are and who we are. God, please speak to us through your word. Use this time to grow us and allow us to worship you more effectively. Amen. All right, per tradition here at Terrytown Christian Church, I would like to begin with a brief quiz, um, and you get bonus points for answering if you are shorter than this sign. Uh, softball question, what is the fastest animal on land? You've got to shout it out like you mean it. You don't have to raise your hands here. I heard somebody say it. Cheetah, right? Okay, anybody know how fast the cheetah can run? 70 miles an hour. Did they clock that? You know, it's like, has one ever made it to 71? You know, you, these are questions asked. Okay, so, a little harder. What's the fastest animal in the sky? Peregrine falcon. All right, good. We are, we're crushing this. Uh, and the peregrine falcon can reach speeds of up to 220, 221, whatever it takes. 186 is what I found on the internet. I don't know. You know, really, did you measure every falcon? Okay, the fastest animal in the water. I think this one's a little harder. Some of you may know. 
So what did you say, the hippo? Yeah. <laughs> that's some dad humor right there, folks. Sailfish. Yeah, that's, that's 100% right. Well, that, was a, that was a good one. Uh, and do you know how fast the uh, sailfish will swim? Uh, I, I've got, on the, per the internet, 68 miles an hour. But that's downhill, so... Uh, yeah. All right, what's the largest animal in the world? Blue whale, right? Actually, the largest animal that's ever existed is the blue whale. Believe it or not, it's bigger than the dinosaurs. So that's kind of neat. Uh, the largest animal on land? Okay, good. Nobody made a joke they don't want to make there. An African elephant. Um, and then the largest animal in the sky is? Well, that's a good guess. Condor's a good guess. This is a tough one. It's a toughie. Okay, it's the wandering albatross. Wandering albatross. Uh, Rhyming the ancient mariner coming in for the win here. Okay. Now, note that absolutely none of these animals, none of these uh, extremes are, are humans, right? We're not the tallest, fastest, strongest, largest, smallest, ist, anything. We get, we get zero, you know, we're like the, the, the we get the participation award when we're, when we're looking for this stuff. I would bet, I would bet that whoever the toughest person here is, that your garden variety tiger could, could win in a cage fight against, you know, just your basic tiger. Beat any single, probably any three of you. Uh, animals have got all kinds of cool tricks, right? You get animals, they can dig, they can swim, they can fly. They can live in Arctic temperatures. Uh, there are animals that can shoot fire out of their rear ends, right? There are animals that can, can electrocute things. Like, man, we got none of these powers, unless you're into Marvel movies, in which case maybe you're back in. Uh, so the question is, what makes humans special? Uh, in, in the Greek myths, you guys read any of the Greek myths, um, there's, there's two characters, Prometheus and Epimetheus, they're brothers. And they, in the, the creation myth that you have, Prometheus fashions humans out of, out of clay, and then Athena gives them life. And while he's over there kind of, you know, making the legs and then making the arms and, you know, doing that thing with Plato that you do, uh, his brother is off giving all of the, the cool powers and gifts to the animals. You know, so he, he, gives, he gives all these cool things that we were just talking about. You know, like lions, they get the big teeth and the agility. Deer get the cool horns, the ability to run fast. You know, and, and by the time, you know, Athena has breathed life into mankind, he's like, all right, what's cool? What are we going to give the humans? There's, there's pretty much nothing left. You know, except for maybe the ability to, like, have petty fights on holidays. That's the, the gift that we got. Uh, and, and so he was so frustrated that there was really nothing left that he, he made humans to walk upright like the gods, and he gave us the gift of fire. And so it is, in fact, to the Greeks, our ability to stand up on two legs and to work with fire that makes us special. Now, the Bible has a reasonably different answer. Um, fire is not mentioned as, you know, man make fire is the thing that makes, makes us special in Genesis. Um, but we do have the thing in common with the Greeks that we believe that we are similar to the gods. In us case, we are similar to God in that we have been made in the image of God and not just because we walk on two legs. So Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we've been kind of doing a whole series 
um, around. Genesis 1 talks about us being made in the image of God. I'll read that out of 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, Daniel spoke last week uh, and, and mentioned the fact that to be made in the image of God is the likeness or image. It's actually the same word as idol, right? That this is, this is a, a copy of God. And the question that we have to ask is, what are the ways in which we are similar to God? Well, there, there's a few things. I, I think maybe it's a nice way to look at it. It's like, what are the ways in which we are different from the rest of creation? Because this, this, this imprint of God that is talked about for humans is specifically for humans. So where we can see us differentiated from the rest of creation, that's a big clue as to how it is that we are supposed to be like God. Now, there's a few things. Okay? In this passage, we just had, um, it's a dominion over the earth, right? That's a unique thing for humans. So we are set over the other aspects of creation. Um, if you keep reading in Genesis, you'll see there's a, there's a huge emphasis on us being moral beings, Right? Reading out of Genesis 2, um, this is 15 and 17, and in 2 you kind of recapitulate the creation of mankind where you see 1 is kind of the creation of everything, including humans, and then 2 we dive back and focus in on humans. In the major focus in 2, there's actually two things. One of them is that we are moral. So starting in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now that is the first moral piece we see in creation. The giving of a law now means that there is an opportunity for both obedience and disobedience. Now we're not going to talk about that today. Um, We're going to talk about another quality that is given to humans. Um, And it is highly related to the moral quality but it is a little bit separate. We're going to talk about how God has made us to be relational beings. And that is an aspect where we share something of the divine nature. So a brief overview of what we're going to be looking at. Um, I'm going to talk about how we are made to be relational. I'm going to talk about how God himself is relational. And then I'm going to talk about how maturity will show in our relationships. So that's, that's your overview. All right. First theme here, we are made to be relational. Um, If you'd like to read along, I'll be reading in Genesis 2, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heaven and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, that, that's a lovely story. Um, having, having made man, God says that it is not good that he should be alone, so God makes for Adam a helper who is made of his very substance. The, the exact same essence. Um, there's like a cute little rabbinic thing that people say that God took Eve from the rib, not from the head that she would be over him or from the feet that he would trot upon her, but from his side that he would be close to his heart and under his arm and by his, by his soul. Um, and the, the point of that, that whole rib and that story is like they are made of the exact same essence. They're essentially, you know, one, one thing here. Uh, the Genesis account here shows that God has made mankind differently from the rest of creation. We go through and Adam has dominion. He gives names to all the things, but nothing is like him. And there is no concern for this additional creation for anything other than for God making man and woman. God makes marriage so that man is not alone, giving man a relationship in which to express relational virtue. Okay. The only thing you really desperately need to get out of that is that God has made us as people to be like him in that we will be relationally needy. We have relational needs. It is not good for man to be alone. Now, there are a couple axes that we can think about relationships. There is a God-to-man relationship that is absolutely core to the biblical narrative. But it is equally true in the Bible that the man-to-man axis will factor in. So, notably, in the highlight of the Eden story is actually the man-to-man axis, the one that we just read with the, the, the male and female, right? That that is kind of the focus of that particular bit. Now, what do you take? Relationships are not going to be a side event in your life. They are not a side event in the Bible. They are core to how God has made every human on the earth. Now, that is not just an aspect of creation that God has given us, you know, he, he gave the antlers to the moose, and he gave us the desperate need to have, you know, dating or relationships or friendships. You know, this is actually something that is God giving us something that is part of who God is as well. That's the second thing I want to talk about, that God himself is relational. So when God makes man to be relational, he is giving us something that is core to him. All right. We're going to hop all over scripture here. This is, uh, this is a bit, bit, you know, you saw in our readings already that we're, we're going to be in the New Testament as well. Um, out of 1 John 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. You've heard this, right? We are very fond of talking about how much God is love. Um, it's a positive way we understand and You know, it doesn't seem to ruffle anybody's feathers. Uh, Now, God describes himself this way. Love is, of its own nature, a relational word, right? There is to be an object in which to show love, in the same way that morality comes into view when there is an opportunity for obedience and disobedience with the tree. Love becomes a virtue that is expressed when there is an object to show love to. And God is going to describe himself in these terms, in highly relational terms. And most of the moral things that we'll see will have a relational component to them. Okay, now think about this, if you will. This is when God describes himself in Exodus. This is on the mountain of Sinai. Moses is interacting with God, and God shows a piece of himself to Moses. And this is how God describes himself. This is out of Exodus 34. 
The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God describes himself as merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. He maintains justice. All of these qualities exist on a relational axis. They are expressed interpersonally. The reading we had in Galatians this morning, consider, if you will, the relational differences between the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Out of Galatians 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. To verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit, however, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These virtues that demonstrate the existence of the Holy Spirit within us are mostly expressed relationally. Conversely, sin is described in things that are relationally damaging. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Now, we've talked about how there are multiple axes of, of sin and virtue. I would like to be very clear that when we talk about relationships, I'm focusing very much on human-to-human relationships. That is not to diminish the God-to-human aspect of these things, right? That we will, you, you, can, you can go just as much along, along that way. Um, and the only thing I would like to be very clear there is that when we speak about relational virtues as part of who God is himself, that he calls us to being, we are not trying to say this is a, a gospel of, of, of Care Bears sentimentality. That God has made us to be nice, and we are to be nice to each other. That is absolutely true, that God has made us to be nice. But God has made us to worship him. And when we are nice, it is a way of sharing the values that he has for humanity as a way of worshiping him, right? Okay, Uh, there's one more bit I want to talk about here before we move on to that, that third point. So we've talked about how humans are made to be relational. And right now we're talking about how God is relational. And you see that in how he describes himself. I want to be a little bit more abstract for a second um, and talk about how this is God implicit to himself as well. This is an odd thing. Uh, Christian philosopher Richard Swinburne makes the following argument on the Trinity. All right, this is... Yeah, I hope everybody's had their coffee. Okay, Swinburne starts with the proposition that God the Father exists alone. Divinity, however, implies perfect goodness. Right? So God exists on his own and is perfectly good in all aspects. Perfect goodness implies being loving. To be perfectly good is to be perfectly loving. However, being loving requires an object, and perfect love is between equals. This means that a perfectly good God cannot be alone and must exist with another divine person. In other words, let's see if we can unpack that just a little bit. 
When we say, and the reason I, I read that first John quote is, it says that God is love, right? The fact that there is a trinity means that God has love within himself. If it is God as one, then there is no object of love. It would be maybe fair to say that God has the capacity for love, but to actually express love requires there to be an object of love. And the fact that when we describe the Trinity, we use terms that are relational, that God is peaceful, that God is joyful, that God is loving, that the, these are all things that, that exist within the Trinity prior to creation, that God for all time is loving within the Trinity, that God is peaceful within the Trinity. So all of these virtues that we use to describe God are, are predicated on the idea that there is such a thing as the Trinity. Fascinating thing to think about. Okay, um, hopefully you're with me so far. God has made us to be relational. God himself is relational, both in how he describes himself and also in his very existence. What does that mean for us? Well, I would like it to mean that maturity will show in our relationships, which is to say, as we become more like God, we should exhibit more relational virtue. Christians are called to be like God. Over and over in Scripture, we are called to be like God. As Ephesians 5.1 says, we are to imitate God. Now, in what ways can we become like God? There's some hard limits on that. We cannot be pre-existent. God alone is pre-existent. We cannot be objects of worship. God alone is the object of worship. So there are, there are ways in which we, will, we, are, we are not divine. But there are ways in which God wants us to be like him. And knowing what those are is fascinating. Okay, there are, these, are, these are things that God wants. Um, you think about what we had in the fruit of the Spirit when God described himself as, this is the fruit of my Holy Spirit within you, right? Those are attributes of God that we are to imitate. We call those communicable attributes, and communicable like COVID, that you can, you can catch it and transfer it, right? That we can, we can catch part of, to be like God in those ways, that we can be peaceful as God is peaceful. We can be joyful as God is joyful. We can be loving as God is loving. I will go so far as to say that the majority of ways in which we grow to become like God are relational virtues. Now, conversely, if our virtue in becoming God-like can be expressed as relational terms, our sin or our movement away from God can also be expressed in relational terms. That's part of why we were looking at the fruit of the Spirit with the deeds of the flesh. Enmity, divisions, dissensions, anger, fits of jealousy. When you look at Matthew 22, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said, you shall love vertical axis. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Thus, relationships become an important barometer for our Christ-likeness. Relationships will show our relational virtues and our vices. Now, there are a couple ways you can think about your relationships. You absolutely 
should be thinking about what does this look like in my family? Do I show the virtue of God towards my spouse, towards my children, to those who you are most likely to take for granted? But that is not sufficient as you remember the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, that we are called to express that also in broader circles, right? That in the same way that Christ pursues the lost sheep, that we are to express relational virtues that God has called us to and made us in his image in a broader way in the world. This is virtue that God has towards us, and this is virtue that we are created to share. All right, um, yeah, there you go, man. So uh, there's some difficult bits we still have to talk about. But the first thing, God has made us to be relational. He is relational himself, and that is part of the ways in which we share. We are, we are image bearers of God. And that, that should express itself in our relationships. Okay, well, what goes wrong? What goes sideways here, apart from the fact that, you know, it's just kind of difficult? As image bearers of a relational God, we are made to need relationship. And the sin that we inherit and the sin that we commit means that we are a decent ways off. I would like to frame all of that against the cross. Okay, first, the cross shows that God's relational desire for us exists despite our separation. You really can read everything after Eden as God trying to, like, unveiling his plan to get us back. Yeah, you guys have probably read this. Um, you know, the Tim Keller quote uh, on being fully known and fully loved. To be, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. You know, somebody loves you but they don't really know you. So you, you can put your best faith, you know, like, oh, look, no, I'm a really happy guy. I'm super nice. And he's like, oh, he seems so nice. And you know better. And you just hope they don't know better. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. You know, somebody actually sees through that, and you're like, actually, I don't like that guy at all. He's not nice. He's awful. But to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. That kind of relational frame, there's a relational loss of mankind in sin, and Christ recovers that for us. He pursues us because he fully knows us, and he fully loves us, and he chases us. The cross models, therefore, the way that he intends for us to pursue relationships. Now, there's a couple ways of that. You know, obviously, we, we do not redeem people like Christ does. But we may, we may share in that redemptive work that he has. Um, one of the things that, that goes off for us is, is modeling. Um, in, in, in counseling, relational counseling, it is often hard to express to somebody where, where you see things that are, are wrong and to help them see what it might look like in a different way. You only know the level of intimacy you have personally experienced. You only know the level of kindness that you have personally seen. I mean, it is very hard to, to help somebody see, like, no, no, it, it, it can be much, much better <laughs> um, if they've never experienced or observed those things. Now, praise God for the incarnation of Christ. Right? That, that he, he has shown us the depth of the Father's love, and he has shown us how we ought to live, how we ought to exert ourselves relationally to show that virtue. Philippians 2, 
uh, one of my favorite, favorite parts of the entire scripture. Paul says that we are to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Whew, that's tough. And our model for this is Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because of Christ's work on the cross, because of that accomplishment, that sacrifice, God has given us his spirit that we may share in those qualities. We return back to seeing the virtue of God as the thing that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit working within us. My goodness. Oh, a Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that he gave us these relational qualities and he is restoring us to them to be fulfilled with that. Isaiah 48 says that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I'd like to pray for us um, on, this, on this theme. God, we ask that as you have made us relational beings, that you would heal us to know you more. Grant us your spirit and change our hearts, God. Grant that we would be able to love as you love. Help us to share your peace with others. And help us to delight in humility and sacrifice as you have done for us. God, please allow us to enjoy and know others in true fellowship. Help us to bear your image, to be full of your character. Open our eyes to see, God, how we may better know unity with others. Please grant that we would bear your name well. That we would reflect your nature and your image in our interactions with others. Be with us, God. Amen.